Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Over eight episodes, we're debating the key questions that will prepare you for 2023. This week, we're looking at global demographic changes and how countries are adapting now to deal with future changes to the structure of their population. When it comes to demographic shifts, 2023 is going to be a big year. The number of people in the world surpassed 8 billion in November 2022, but growth is slowing and the global population is expected to peak towards the end of this century. Some countries' populations are already shrinking, while others have decades of growth ahead of them. So what explains these differences, and what are the pros and cons of having a growing or shrinking population? Someone who knows all about this is Brooke Unger, our international correspondent. Hello, Brooke. Hello. And on the line from Delhi, with lots of traffic in the background, is Lena Shipper, our South Asia Bureau Chief. Hello, Lena. Hi, Tom. I mean, there was basically no quiet place in Delhi, so apologies for any car horns or random construction noises that may appear um, throughout the episode. Brooke, if I can start with you, we recently passed this global population milestone of 8 billion people, as I said, but there's another big population milestone coming in 2023, isn't there? So what is it? It's that uh, sometime in April, India will surpass China as the world's most populous country, and that's a big event in the world's demographic history. And what will the population be at at the point of overtaking? It'll be 1.4 billion and change in both countries. Right. Lena, I know that India likes to see itself as an emerging superpower. So becoming the most populous nation, is that something that feeds into that narrative? Yeah, there was a lot of media take up on India overtaking China in terms of population in 2022 when that first was announced. And there's been a lot of discussion over the past few months of India's role in the world you know, as a sort of emerging superpower in the 21st century, particularly in the context of uh, rivalry between America and China. What is India's role going to be? How does it position itself in geopolitics in the coming decades? Brooke, so India will become the most populous nation, but also the trajectories of its population and China's population are very different, aren't they? So what's happening there? Well, they are very different. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things is that China really is poised for a very, very steep population decline, basically from now, whereas India's population is going to continue growing for another few decades. There's a very kind of dramatic difference in the population trajectories of the two countries. And the age profiles of the two countries are also very different, which has economic consequences. So how much of that is down to China's one-child policy? The one-child policy certainly played a role, uh, but demographers actually think that an earlier policy called later, longer, fewer, which means women having babies later, waiting longer between them and having fewer babies, that policy came in earlier than the one-child policy, and that actually had an even more dramatic effect on China's fertility. And China's fertility really just plunged very, very rapidly in a way that it's done in very few other countries. But it turns out that India's had a family planning program for even longer than China. S.Y. Qureshi is an Indian civil servant and the author of a book called The Population Myth. India is the first country in the world to have a national family planning program. It started in 1951. We have been able to 
make our population understand the importance of keeping the family small and at least half the population has already adopted family planning. I'm very optimistic about India's future. The fact that India is quite close to stabilization of the population, we have already achieved a replacement rate of 2.1 is the number of children a woman will produce in her lifetime. That means the population will get replaced, it will not increase, it will not decline. That phase will be there for about 20 years after which the population should start declining. Going down to some extent is a good idea, but going down very rapidly will create problems. About 40 years ago, the population explosion was the key word that we were all using. The population explosion soon enough became a demographic dividend because India's economy transformed drastically because of remittances from people who went abroad and $80 billion plus is sent every year by our people outside. Okay, we heard there, Brooke, about the fact that India's population has still got some years of growth ahead of it, but it will then start to decline as well. Yes. But in the meantime, we have what's referred to there as the potential for a demographic dividend. So what is that exactly? Well, the demographic dividend is basically about the ratio of the number of people of working age, which is kind of generally considered to be 15 to 64, to the number of children and the number of people too old to work. And so when you have a very large cohort of people of working age in relation to those dependent age groups, then you get a demographic dividend, which means that you know those people are, are working, they're in the workforce, they're producing for the economy, and they have to support you know relatively few old and young people. And when that happens, the tendency, all things being equal, is for economic growth to pick up. Lena, how is India placed to, to benefit from this demographic dividend? I mean, what, what actually, is it something that happens automatically or, is it, or are there government policies that have to be put in place to benefit from it? One of the things that you need to look at when it comes to benefiting from a demographic dividend is productivity, um, because all of these relatively young and productive people need to be doing things that make sense, that advance the economy, that, that make it grow. Some of the things that are really important in that context are education and healthcare where India is lagging behind to some degree. So while it does have a lot of people of working age, the qualifications that these people have are not necessarily as high quality as you might want them to be in order to achieve rapid economic growth. So the the education system needs further improvements, as does the healthcare system, because you want your population to be not suffering from medical problems that can impede their lives. And the other thing you need is for all of these people to actually be able to work and have jobs that make sense for them. And if you look at labor market participation in India, it's relatively low compared with, say, a place like China, particularly among women, which is something that uh, India still needs to look at um, improving much more rapidly than it currently is. Brooke, what's your take on India's demographic dividend? Do you agree with S.Y. Qureshi, who did seem rather upbeat about India's prospects there? In general, I, I share his his optimism. I'd say a couple of things to qualify that. I mean, number one is that India had a very draconian population control policy in the 1970s when they actually forcibly sterilized people to try and get population growth down. That actually didn't work very well. I mean, China's policies were much more effective. And so India's decline in, in births and fertility is happening on a much gentler trajectory than China's, which is actually a good thing. 
you know, while the basic structure of the age, uh, the age structure of India is, is, is a healthy thing for the economy, I think Leona is right. India has done too little to train people for the jobs that the economy will need. The youth unemployment, as I understand it, is very high. You know, India's people are much less productive than they could be. You know, it's got a demographic dividend, but it's got a lot of deficits in other areas that it's got to correct. Thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to look at a country that faces a very different demographic challenge. But first, a quick reminder, if you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. Otherwise, you're missing out on our coverage of big global trends in politics, economics, and yes, demographics. So boost the population of Economist subscribers by taking out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage and I'm talking to my colleagues Brooke Unger, our international correspondent, and Lena Schipper, our South Asia bureau chief, about demographic shifts to watch in 2023. Now, we heard about India's young and growing population and the associated demographic dividend. At the other end of the spectrum is Japan, which has an old and shrinking population. So it, it has what? Brooke, what's the opposite of a demographic dividend? I guess you could say demographic decline, really. Yeah, I mean, Japan is one of the oldest countries on earth. It's got a very large population of old people, and its population is in decline. And just as for India, a growing young population has potential economic benefits, so for Japan, you know, a shrinking old population has potential economic downsides. So we heard earlier on that China is also about to see its population start to decline. So it's going to be following Japan down that road. What in practice does it mean? What are the disbenefits of having an older and shrinking population? First of all, I mean, the demographic dividend that China had earlier, which kind of came to an end around about 2010, I mean, that played a role in China's emergence as an economic superpower. But now, you know, those very same trends are kind of going to go into reverse. Instead of having more working people supporting fewer kids, you're going to have fewer weak working people supporting more non-working older adults. That has implications for productivity. It has implications for total output. It has implications for the pension system, which is not in very good shape. And China compounds its problems by actually having a very low effective retirement age, I think around 54. That means that even though people are still at the age that demographers consider to be working age, they're actually not working, which again pulls production out of the economy. So there are things that you can do to fight against the drag of demographic decline, but you know that requires smart policies, retraining, a well-structured pension system, and a lot of other things. Lena, this aging population is something we've seen in Japan and also in, in South Korea. What sorts of policies have those countries introduced in response to declining birth rates? Both South Korea and Japan have tried to boost the birth rate. Um, this is basically been a thing they've been attempting to do for several decades now. They've tried to encourage women to have more children. There were some horrible campaigns in South Korea where the president decided to color in the most fertile bits of the country in pink in order to encourage everybody else. So you had sort of harebrained schemes like that. But more recently, they've started doing more sensible things, which is trying to make it easier for women to combine having children and having careers by expanding infrastructure for nurseries and schools and education, that kind of thing. So you, you have a bit more of a balance because... 
in uh, um, both these countries, gender roles tend to be fairly conservative. So a lot of the burden of um, children's education and sort of looking after households still falls on women. So they've tried to do that. And they've also much more recently started allowing in more immigrants, which was not something that either South Korea or Japan were particularly keen on for a very long time, in order to basically add young people to the country who can uh, help stem the burden of the aging population and expand the pension system. So why is it that we've seen this phenomenon of the, of the aging, shrinking population manifest itself in South Korea and Japan first? Is it something to do with their rapid growth after the war or not having much immigration? I mean, what, what's the common factor that means that those countries are particularly affected? Um, so there, there's a variety of factors, I think, that have influenced this. Rapid development is one. Um, you've just had a much, much faster economic growth in those countries than in a lot of other places where it took a lot longer to get from a developing country status to to the rich. So why does that reduce the birth rate? Uh, is it that wealth is the best contraceptive and this was sort of a rapid dose of that, as it were? So rapidly increasing wealth is one very important aspect because you tend to have a strong correlation between people getting richer and having fewer babies because there are just other opportunities. It's been compounded in South Korea and Japan, according to a lot of sociological research, by um, very traditional gender roles. So the gap between women's sort of expectations for themselves because they're incredibly highly educated and ambitious in the labor market and the traditional expectations of family have persuaded a lot of women to just not choose to have children because it would have just jeopardized all their other ambitions. So that's been a very big factor too in both Korea and Japan. Another factor in uh, definitely in South Korea was the incredibly competitive education system, which just puts a very heavy burden on parents to uh, organize after school activities for their kids, make sure they do lots of homework in addition to school. And a lot of that burden has also fallen on women and it's all very expensive. So people have just decided that having fewer children is the way to go in order to cope with those pressures. But is having an ageing population all bad? Hiroko Akiyama is a gerontologist and professor emeritus at the University of Tokyo, and she points out a silver lining in Japan's ageing population, which is it's partly the result of the fact that people are living longer. In the past, we have focused on extending our life expectancy. Currently, 28% of the population is aged 65 and older. The average life expectancy for women is almost 89 years. And also the birth rate is very low. We face some formidable challenges. Pension system, healthcare, long-term care issues, dementia, the loneliness. But at the same time, I think we need to focus on the new opportunities. We are currently are going through a period of major transition and we need a new map of life. The existing infrastructure of cities are built when the population was much younger, and we need to redesign the cities to meet the needs of highly aged society. And we want to build cities where people could live for 100 years, staying healthy, active, connected, and live with a sense of security. And the social system must be rearranged so that older people can pursue new goals, including getting education. We're working on housing and transportation system and long-term care. Technological and social innovations are required. And the aging population offers boundless business opportunities 
the 100 Years Life Society is a gold mine of innovation. Brooke, what do you think of this rosy view of having a much older population? Is there really a gold mine of innovation here? And might Japan you know, benefit from developing a model that uh, other countries can then emulate? Well, I mean, I certainly think that there are opportunities. And, you know, one of the things that I think tends to distort the debate a little bit is we, you know, I use the phrase working age population, which is generally lacquered to be, you know, 15 to 64. I mean, just that phrase alone, in a sense, traps you in a way of thinking that isn't sensible if you're managing the demographic decline. Because the fact is that, you know, a lot of people can work well beyond 64. And especially in, in developed countries where people are working with their minds rather than their bodies, they can be productive, you know, well into their 70s. And so, you know, this notion that demography is destiny or isn't correct. You can certainly mitigate the downsides by finding ways to keep older people in the workforce for longer. And that's something that, you know, I'm pretty sure Japan is working on. Lena, what can other countries learn from Japan's efforts to deal with its low birth rate and shrinking population? So essentially, I think one of the lessons or the main lesson you can take from places like Japan and South Korea, which have experienced this for a long time, is that efforts to boost fertility just don't work. You know, people get to a certain economic position in life, they decide this is how many children I want to have. And whatever the state does is only going to have very minimal effect on that. So I think that is probably the main lesson that other countries can draw. And Brooke, where does China fit into that? Well, China a couple of years ago abolished its one-child policy, and now it has no restrictions at all on the number of children you can have. And the fact is that, you know, as Lena said, it's not worked. Uh, people are not having more children. In fact, the number of births actually went down during the COVID pandemic. So, you know, there are countries in the world that have managed to maintain a reasonable level of fertility, even though they're very advanced and very developed. And, you know, a lot of those are in Northern Europe. And, and the way that they've achieved that is by having programs that encourage uh, women to have children, but to continue their careers, you know, encourage fathers to be full partners in the in the job of, of child rearing. You know, you need a, a well-run and well-appointed welfare state if you want to maintain high levels of fertility at high levels of wealth. Great. Thank you very much for um, teasing out those connections between demographics, economic growth, and women's rights. That's all we have time for. Personally, I find this whole subject absolutely fascinating. Demographics is, you might say, a topic that never gets old. Thank you very much, Brooke and Lena. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about demographic changes and challenges and what else to expect in the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2023. Next week, we'll be predicting what 2023 holds for American politics. This episode was a tempo and talker production for The Economist. The producer is Tom Pooley and the executive producer is Sandra Smuelli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. Mm-hmm.